Our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And if I could ask you to stand up one more time as we read this passage. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So this morning, uh, I want to talk about something a little different. We've been doing a series on John, but we're going to divert from that just for this week. Um, because I want to talk about our need to belong in community. Specifically, I want to talk about how this community, known as the church, is intended to meet our needs in a unique way that no other group, no other organization, no other club ever could. But before we get into it, uh, let's just talk about this idea of the church for a minute. What do you think most people think of when they hear the word church. Maybe they think of a building. Maybe they think of a religious institution of some kind with some set of beliefs. Maybe they think of an organization that has rules and morals and codes to follow. Some, and, and maybe a group that does some good things in the community. Probably... What most of the world today thinks about when they hear the word church is something that is becoming increasingly irrelevant. Interestingly enough, uh, this is a question that the people who first built this building were thinking about. They were very concerned with the question, what is the church? In fact, they specifically went out of their way to call this building a meeting house. You know that? They called it a meeting house, not a sanctuary. They didn't even call it a church because they were aware about how easily we could get the wrong ideas of what a church is. They called this place a meeting house because they wanted to send a clear message to everybody that the church is not a building, but the church is first and foremost a people. And wherever we gather, wherever we are, that is the church. That's a noble idea. I think that's a correct instinct that they had. And I think when we look at this passage in Acts, we can see where that kind of thinking comes from. Because what we have here in these opening chapters, in chapter 2 of Acts, is the description of what the church is really meant to be. What the church can be at its best. And this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I think I've preached on this passage more than I've preached on any other passage. And I promise, if you hang around me long enough, I've got a 10-sermon series on these verses. And it's coming. It's coming someday. But today, I just want to uh, talk about this because it gets me so excited. I, I love this picture of the church because it is the picture of, of a church that's healthy. It is the picture of the church at its healthiest. But 
It's also a picture of the community that I think we're all looking for. It's the kind of community that we all, every single one of us, we all need it, whether we know it or not. This is nothing less than the community you were made for. And so I want to break this down really quickly with three observations from this passage. The first is that the community we need is rooted in joy. The second is that the community we need is deeply attached. And finally, the community we need can be found right here. So let's get into that. The community we need is rooted in joy. Thinking about the community we need, I mean, that's a big question. Community is hard to find, isn't it? Especially the older you get, right? Community just, it's, a, a four-year-old can find community in the sandbox in two minutes, right? A, a four-year-old can make a best friend uh, before you can blink your eyes. But me, a 40-year-old, I've been here for two years in this area, a little more now, two and a half years, and I've been trying really hard to make friends. And it's taken me every bit of that time to finally start making some good relationships. And I think it's even harder today in this modern technological age that we're living in. We have all these, you know, statistics that will tell you uh, people are more connected now than ever, and yet we're lonelier than ever. You know, we, I think part of that is because we're, we're hyper-connected through text and social media, but what we do there is we kind of curate relationships, don't we? Posts and images and a timely emoji or a gif or something like that. But in those interactions, we're not experiencing real connection. This paragraph in Acts, it just, it's the opposite of all that. It hits so hard when you look at it because it's something really special. It's something that stands apart. What we see here is a community that is bound by something powerful. It's not just the simple friendship that you form. It's more than those usual relationship starters that's around shared hobbies or a common life experience. These people are connected by joy. Everybody say joy. joy. This community began because they experienced the joy of God's favor. Now, we started in verse 42, so that means there are 41 verses in this chapter that we didn't read, we just kind of parachuted right into this, but chapter 2 of Acts is the story of Pentecost. It's that great moment when the Holy Spirit comes down, empowers the disciples to, to preach so that everybody could understand, and then Peter gives this amazing sermon. Uh, you should know about this passage, though, that this takes place during what was called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was a harvest festival. It happened in Jerusalem, and it was about 50 days after Pentecost, or 50 days after Passover, another major feast of the Jewish people. So right in the midst of this feast, the Feast of Weeks, Peter gives a huge sermon explaining a horrifying truth. He tells the crowd that 50 days ago, when they were here last time for the Passover, they had gathered one evening 
and demanded the crucifixion of a man. A man who they believed was a blasphemer. A man who they suspected might have been a revolutionary, a political figure. That day, 50 days ago, the crowd had gotten riled up by their religious leaders and they had turned into a bloodthirsty mob. And they demanded that Jesus be put to death. And so here, in Acts 2, Peter explains he was no mere man. But Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh. And less than two months ago, they killed him. And he ends his sermon with this painful line, verse 36. He says, therefore... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And they know it's true. They remember what happened. They don't try to deny it. They don't try to make excuses. What's amazing here is in this moment, it says in verse 37, that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? There's a story in Matthew where Jesus is, uh, he's, he's telling a story. He's telling a story about uh, this landowner. Uh, who sent tenants to uh, his property. Here's Here's how it goes. It's Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Jesus says, uh, this is sometimes called the parable of the tenants. Maybe you've heard it before. He says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus ends the story by saying, asking this question, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now the people listening to that story, they responded, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Justice. Retribution. They killed the master's son. Of course, wrath is coming for them. That's what they deserve. That's the right answer. Those wretches deserve a wretched end. At this point in Acts, when Peter is preaching and, and the disciple and these, the crowd says, what shall they do? You could imagine Peter saying just that. <laughs> It's too late. Wrath is coming. Vengeance is coming. But he doesn't do that. In Matthew, Jesus doesn't go there either. Instead, when, he call, when the crowd is calling to him for wrath, Jesus says, 
this mysterious thing. He says, the stone, have you not heard in scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. In Acts, Peter, instead of turning to the crowd and spreading the word of wrath, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. All of a sudden, Peter, he says, that man that you killed 50 days ago is the source of your salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in that instant, everything changed. What had been a bloodthirsty mob just a few weeks ago becomes the first church. And why? Because they were welcomed by God. In a split second, they became First, they became acutely aware of who they really were. They saw themselves as they truly were. They saw the worst parts of themselves. They couldn't deny it, right? They had done terrible things. They deserved to be brought to that wretched end. But instead, they got the opposite. They were given God's joy and his pleasure. They looked up in this incredible moment of shame, this moment of horror, and they found God's smiling face, a God who wanted them, a God who had laid down his own life to rescue them. And see, that is step one of this kind of community. It's joy. It is an experience of God's face shining on us. And I hope, if you're a part of this church, I hope you have experienced that before. But if you haven't, I want you to know it's available for you. It's available for you right now. No matter how far away you may feel from God. No matter how guilty you may be, no matter what shame it is that you bear this morning, when Christ covers you, God smiles at you. You know, the gospel, that is what it is, right? It's so good when you break it down. It's so good, in fact, that a lot of times if you preach it that clearly, some religious people will get mad at you, right? They'll say, you can't tell people that. You can't tell people that God loves them unconditionally. You can't tell them that that even in your sin and in your biggest failures and even when you've screwed up and hurt people and made a mess of everything in your life, that even then God's face still shines on you if you're in Christ. They say if you tell them that, well, they're just going to become horrible people. They're just going to go live these reckless lives because what's to stop them? But that's not the truth. That's not the truth at all. Look at this passage. All of this amazing stuff that we just read about, all these things that this church is doing, 
worshiping every day, being devoted to the teaching, praying, giving everything they have to the poor, those weren't mandates. That just happened. Because they were experiencing God's delight for the first time. The truth is, it's his kindness that draws us. It's his love that draws us. His joy, it propels us to become more like him. When we can see God, when we can really see him, and we know that he knows us to the core, that he knows our darkest thoughts, he knows our deepest needs, he knows our greatest failures, when we can see his face towards us in those moments shining on us, and we realize that, that the, the expression on his face is not a frown, it's not a look of disappointment, it's not a look of anger, but instead it is him declaring, I love you. I'm so happy to see your face. I'm not leaving you behind. When you experience that, it's electric. It's powerful. It's the kind of thing that transforms you. And you find that when you're experiencing that pretty quickly, you start to look at other people the same way. Not in judgment. Not in self-righteous holiness. Not worried about how they're going to get their life on track. Not worried about what they're wearing or what their politics may be or where they come from. But instead, you're looking at them with joy. The way that God looks at you. That's what's happening here. This community, it just forms all of the sudden, out of nowhere, by the power of the Spirit... And it's a community of shared joy. And that brings me to the second trait I want to talk about. The community we need is, is first the community of joy. Secondly, it is a community uh, of deep, deeply attached people. Deeply attached, committed lives. I don't think I need to say this, but I, in case you don't realize, we live in a consumeristic, materialistic, individualistic culture. The path of least resistance is always pulling us that way. It's always teaching us to think and act along those lines. Think about your daily activities, right? Our, our, our technology is teaching us to, to curate our own playlist, right? To let the algorithm feed you the videos you, you should watch and the, the ads you should pay attention to and the articles that you should read perfectly tailored to you. The world's telling us to go about our lives the way we see fit and to do the things that make us happy. And man, I, I struggle with that. Literally. I mean, I struggle, I struggle looking at my phone too much. Does anybody else? Nobody's going to admit it. Nobody wants to be told that, right? Put your phone down. But I do. I just, it's so easy to pick it up and be sucked into this little mindless world that has been perfectly built for me. And it's so much harder to do other stuff. Read a book, that's harder, right? Deal with actual real life human beings with their different ideas and opinions and thoughts and, and needs. 
That's harder, right? Is it any wonder, wonder in a world like this why the, the American church especially tends to be such a mess? Why churches can look so much more like that American consumerism than this, than this picture we see in Acts? Evangelical churches, churches like ours, are often much more concerned about having famous pastors, looking young and cool, having all the programs, having a bookstore, having an app, offering everything that every person could ever want, whatever their needs may be. And even churches that don't have all that stuff, churches, well, like us, that don't have all that stuff, we still often, we look around uh, enviously, right? We wish we had all those things. Because that's what a successful church is in America. That's what we've been told. But not here. That is not Acts chapter 2. This church is exactly the opposite of all those things. It's not a collection of individuals who are concerned about having their own needs met. It's a community where people's lives are being transformed because they love each other. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. Everybody say love. There's this book I've been reading called The Other Half of Church. And if you've talked to me lately, you've heard about this book because I'm on my second read-through, I'm just so excited about the, the content in there. And I really enjoy the way he describes God's love in that book. He talks about this word, this Old Testament word, hesed. It's a very popular, common word all throughout the Bible. And the way he translates this word for us is deep attachment. Now, in the Old Testament, hesed, if you run across it, is usually translated either just love or steadfast love is a common way. Uh, if you look at Psalm 136, I have that up there. We're not going to read it, but I'm just going to let you look at it. See how it says, his love endures forever, his love endures forever, his love endures forever, his love endures forever, over and over and over again. That word is hesed. And it does mean steadfast love, but it's a big word. It's a word we struggle to translate properly because it's a covenant word. It's a word about God's unfailing love for his people that can never, ever, 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 ever be broken. So the author, he says, I think deeply attached is a helpful word to help our modern minds grasp what God's trying to say with that word hesed. And he suggests, with that verse from Jesus, a translation like this, deeply attach yourselves to one another, as I have deeply attached myself to you, so you should deeply attach yourselves to one another. I love it. Don't you? Doesn't it give a totally different ring to that very familiar verse? 
And then look at Acts chapter 2 again with that in your mind. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs being done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued meeting together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. These are a people who are deeply attached to one another. It's not just another church service, right? Yeah, they had those. But that was just one of the many things that defined them. And you know what? This is how people experience God. This is how people's lives get changed. Yes, I'm a preacher. I believe that you can have an important, impactful moment listening to a sermon. It can make a difference in your life. You can have an impactful, transformative moment in a Bible study. But I also know that most of the real transformation that's happened in my life has happened in community. It's happened not because I just heard some message about it, but it happened because I was living around people who were living it out. I was seeing it modeled. I I saw what it meant to live a humble and joy-filled life. Transformation for me has always happened in those groups where people loved me enough that when I messed up and when I acted like a jerk or when I hurt somebody's feelings, which, look, I can do that sometimes. Those people loved me enough to stay deeply attached to me. And to say something like, hey, Logan, when you made that sarcastic comment the other day, I didn't say anything about it then, but it hurt my feelings. And so instead of burying it and being passive aggressive about it for the next few months, or instead of running away and finding a new friend, I wanted to tell you that it hurt. Because I know that you love Jesus And I know that's not who you really are. That's how a deeply attached community can operate. And that is where real change happens. If I'm just consuming church, if I'm just consuming my community, if I'm just here as long as it makes me happy and does the things that I like and looks the way that I want it to look, well, then this is the point when I bail. Right? When somebody confronts me on my junk, that's when I leave. That's the point when I go onto my little spiritual shopping app and I say, remove from cart. Right? But if I do that, I go on without ever experiencing this. Hesed. Deeply attached love. That love that is strong enough to shape me into the image of God. My buddy, he called me the other day. He's a pastor as well. And he was telling me about some conflict that he had been having with one of his leaders. Somebody who I also knew and cared a lot about. 
And in his anxiety over this conflict, in his fear over the conflict, he was sharing some of his schemes with me. Some of his creative ideas to convince this person that it was their own idea to leave the leadership, right? His plans to make him go away. And I encouraged him. And in the midst of that, I saw, I heard the Lord revealing to him that that wasn't the way to go. I heard as he realized slowly that the gospel had all the resources that he needed for reconciliation. And I'm happy to say that I heard back this week that they got together, they talked it through, and now they have come out with a stronger and deeper connection than they had beforehand. And when I see that stuff, I hear that stuff, I think, yeah, that's it. That's right. That's, that's what I want. I want a church where we don't give, on up, give up on people because Jesus doesn't give up on us. And I see a moment like that, and I read a description like this in Acts, and I think, I need that. I need that kind of community. And so do you. It's what we're all looking for. And it's no surprise that the last thing you read in this passage is that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, because it is what we are all looking for. Amen? And so that brings me to the last thing I want to say this morning. And it's that this community that we need, it can be found right here. The community we need, it can be found right here. Now, Center, I want to start off by commending you for the ways I have seen glimpses of this in you already. I am constantly amazed by the hard work I've seen you doing to serve this community, to serve this church, to love these people around our, our building. And whenever I'm with our leadership, whenever I'm with our deacons and our elders, I always come home telling Melissa just how amazed I am by your deep faith, uh, by your longing to see God's kingdom come. Uh, I don't want you to hear me going through this passage as some sort of critique this is really just me sharing with you that God has even more for us. His desire for our church is more than business as usual. And yeah, I, I would agree with somebody who would say, well, this is unique. This is special. Yeah, this is a special moment, right? This is the birth of the church. This happens right after Pentecost. But I don't think this passage is meant to be some unattainable pipe dream. God really wants us to experience this. And I know that because when I read these verses, it's not just history. I feel a longing for this in my bones. Don't you? They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Who doesn't want that? Can you picture it? I can. And I've even seen glimpses of it already. But God is calling us deeper. So how do we do it? How do we get there? You know, I, I've thought about this a lot. 
the application portion of a sermon. And, and I know there are some practical things that I could tell you to do from this passage. For instance, we can stand to get a little more honest with each other. When the crowd heard Peter's sermon telling them the horrible sin they committed, they didn't say, hmm, interesting, I'll think about it and come back next week. No, they were not afraid to let their weakness show. They were not afraid to say, I, you're right, I'm guilty. I need a savior. I am not the put-together, holy, righteous person that I look like I am when I'm here at this religious feast. I'm a mess. And without God's help, I am doomed. And we do need that. We need to be able to put down our pretense. Another thing I could, have, I could tell you to do from this passage is that we need to be with each other more. We need to preach the gospel to each other more, right? We can't just hear about God's deeply attached love from one guy standing on a stage. But we have to live it out. we got to put our phones down and look at each other eye to eye, face to face. We can't just hear it spoken as a doctrine, but we have to live it out. We've got to let our faces shine on each other. But even as I kind of think about the, the list of the things that we can learn, I'm realizing that, that saying that we should do all these things might be putting the cart ahead of the horse. The sermon is titled, I think, Belonging in Community. But it's really about belonging in the people of God. It's about belonging in, in the church. And what I want you to take away from this passage, more than anything else, is that this did not happen because a people heard a list of things they should do and they started doing them. This passage is not an instruction manual on how to be a great church. These people are not doing stuff for God. They are simply being the people of God. This isn't what we have to do. This is who we will become. This is who God will make us when we let his face shine on us. When we realize more and more that in Christ we have really been forgiven. We have been brought into his family. So that means this is not some kind of magical community either. You know, some community will only experience you know, in the sky by and by, someday long from now. This community is here, right now, sitting next to you. So rather than trying to come up with a plan to reproduce this formula, my application really is bask in the good news. Let's instead try to soak up the joy. Let's live in the reality of God's deeply attached love that can never, ever, ever be broken. And let's see what God does with us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I'm so excited when I think about your church. Your church is unique in all the world. It is your chosen vessel for sharing the good news. And I thank you for these people here who show me your good news with their lives, with their actions, with their words. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would knit us together more deeply, that you would allow us to experience more and more of this picture here. And I pray for those who are on the outside looking in, who feel that they don't have a community, no one who knows them, no one who could understand. Lord, would they be welcomed into this body? Would they be welcomed into your family today? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.